I do want to thank you this morning, like Steph mentioned a few moments ago. Um, I had a mentor tell me years ago that you have to be uh, careful and aware to not let the the work of the ministry destroy the work that God does in you. And so I thank you for the opportunity to have just a few weeks to restore, to reflect, to, to connect with God. You know, my heart's desire is that when we gather together, not only is his presence here, but as we study his word, we're not just looking at words, but that what God um, is, uh, that it's, there's a, uh, an authenticity to it in the sense that God's already worked in my life with these uh, with these truths you know when you think about hope and what that word means and as I was thinking about where to start with all the things that we see uh, going on around us and um, you don't have to look very far do you I mean you might go to your favorite web browser or go uh, turn on your television or or wherever it seems that you look Uh, there's so many things happening that are frightening just a few of those is on July the 14th, it was a Thursday, just what, a couple of weeks ago, a, 30 year, a 31-year-old man by the name of Muhammad got into a 19-ton vehicle and decided on Bastille Day to run over folks in Paris, France, killing 84 people intentionally, intentionally, got in the vehicle, and ran over children and mothers and fathers and we ask ourselves the question don't we I mean what kind of evil does that and how could someone do that you think of Wednesday July the 27th again in Paris France when two terrorists entered into a mass that was happening and they took the priest a few nuns some of those that were attending as hostages and eventually taking the life of the priest slitting his throat then you ask yourself, what kind of evil does that? How does someone intentionally do those things? I'm reminded of March the 24th in 1998. Now that's a long time ago, but Steph and I at the time were in, uh, living in Paragould, Arkansas. About 15 miles away was a town, Jonesboro, uh, Jonesboro Arkansas. Just outside of Jonesboro was Westside uh, Middle School. On Uh, that day in March, a 6th and 7th grader pulled the fire alarm and then ran out to the trees and the bushes that were just outside. They had taken rifles from their parents' house. And as the kids and teachers came out of the middle school, they took aim and they shot them. They killed four of their schoolmates and one teacher, a teacher that we knew, Shannon Right was her name. She was married. She had young children. And you think, how can there be so much evil in a sixth and a seventh grader? I mean, where does all this come from? Just last month, the month of June in Orlando, Florida, again, a man took a weapon, went into a nightclub, and killed over 50 people. How does that happen? Is there really any hope? There's so much fear. Now, before we start to shout and scream and, and, and blame our politicians, because I don't know if you know this or not, but this is an election year. Do you know that? Have you noticed? Yeah, there's a few campaign ads on television and other places. But before we blame them, or maybe some of us would be tempted to look to them for answers and hope that somehow they could do something about the evil and that they could restore our hope. I want to challenge us to do something today that's much more difficult. 
What if we were to look into our own hearts and ask ourselves some really difficult questions? Now, that may not feel as spiritual, but the reality is, is that hope begins with us. Hope is something that spreads one person at a time. And so if our world is really going to have a sense of hope, then we have, to, we have to ask ourselves some difficult questions. Have you ever wondered why you do what you do? I mean, not why they do what they do, but have you ever wondered why you do what you do? I, I, know, I know that I have. I, 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 in our home, to get into uh, the building where we live, you have to have a, a fob to get in. And, and so it's important that you don't lose it, and yet I have lost a couple of them. My wife reminds me that they're expensive every time that that happens. But I don't understand why when I realize that I have lost my fob, you know what my first inclination is? It's to blame my kids. They must have took my fob. They must have lost theirs, and they must have took mine. So the first thing I do is I will ask both um, Bailey and Carson, did you did you guys take my fob? And if they say no after much, you know, are you sure? You can tell dad the truth, okay? After the, you know, an assurance that they didn't, my next thought is to blame Stephanie. She must have moved it, trying to, you know, we want everything so neat and everything's got to be in its place, and, and she must have lost it. Why is it that I do that when I know I lost it? Why is it that my first inclination is to blame somebody else? Why is it when you're cut off in traffic, you act the way that you do? Why is it rather than think, you know, maybe this is an emergency, maybe this person really has to get somewhere important, why is it that we act like we do? I mean, I've been behind some of you. I know how you act. It's quite evil. I mean, why, why is it? Why is it such a big a deal? Why do we get so angry? Why do we get so, why do we get so upset? Why do we want to eat? the very food that will kill us. Why is it that there's something, well, just one more piece of pizza, just one more brownie, even though we know that that has the ability to destroy us? Or have you ever wondered, why is it that someone would walk down an aisle, look another person in the face and say, I do, I am committed to you, to, uh, in good times and in bad times, in sickness and in health. I mean, we are committed. And then those two people would have children and then one of them would go to work and someone would sit in the desk next to them in the office or they would go to the gym and someone would walk into that environment or in some way they would see someone else who would grab their attention and all of a sudden this what we would think rational person walks away from the person that they have been committed to forever hurting that relationship and breaks the heart of their children in order to satisfy their own needs. Why would someone do that? Have you ever asked the question, why is it not just that there is evil out in the world, but why is there evil in my own life? Where does this evil come from? So what I want to do is I want to quickly answer five questions concerning evil. And we're going to talk about hope, but in order to truly understand the hope that God gives us, we kind of have to journey through the evil and ask ourselves some questions, sometimes difficult questions, about the destination of evil and the path of evil. And so let, let's just jump in. Here's, here's the first question that I jotted down in your notes is from where does evil come? I mean, what, what, where... <laughs> Where, where does this come from? Whether it be 
a temper tantrum that you throw or it be a gentleman getting into a vehicle and intentionally running down people. Where does evil come from? The Bible doesn't take very long to answer this question. The prophet Jeremiah answers it in chapter 17. He says, the human heart is the most deceitful of, and you might circle this in your notes, of all things. Where does evil come from? It doesn't come externally, but it comes internally. The prophet Jeremiah says that the evil we see in the world is given birth inside of us. People aren't radicalized by what happens outside or externally. It's because of their heart. He says, the human heart is the most deceitful of all things and is desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad that it is? Now, so from where does evil come? Well, Jeremiah tells us that it comes from our heart. Jesus said the same thing in Mark chapter 7. He says, and then Jesus added, it is what comes, and because, uh, um, uh, excuse me, uh, it's, they're talking about what you should eat, what you shouldn't eat, and all those kind of things, kind of religiosity. And he says, uh, it is what comes from inside that defiles you. This word defiles means pollutes you. It, it makes you evil, makes you do the things that you don't understand why you do them. He says it's what comes from the inside that defiles you. From within, out of a person's heart, come evil, and then he lists them. Evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, wickedness, deceit, lustful desires, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these vile things come where? From within. That is what defiles us. It comes from the heart. So when you and I ask the question, where does evil come from? Evil comes from our own heart. Now, it's important to understand that because until we really understand the depth of evil within ourselves, we'll never understand the love and the hope that God has provided. Many of us spend a lot of our lifetime trying to come up with reasons or rationalize the evil that is within us. Because you ask the second question I put in your notes is, so then who's evil? If evil comes from our heart, then do we all have that heart? Or just some of us have that heart? Well, Paul, and we're going to spend a lot of time in the book of Romans because he really dives into this. But Paul tells us in Romans chapter 3, he kind of, the same way I just asked the question, he asked it. So where does that put us? Do we Jews, Paul was a Jew, get a better break than others? No, not really. Basically all of us, whether insiders or outsiders. Now, what does that mean? Insiders or outsiders, Jews or Gentiles. What, what he's saying is, whether you're here and you're a believer, you have put your faith in God, you believe he's the master, the Lord, the CEO of your life, or whether you're here and you're like, I'm not really into that. I don't know that God is who he said he was. I, I, don't, I haven't really trusted my life with him. I mean, maybe there's a God, but I've not put my faith in him. Whether you be someone who is a Christ follower or someone who is not a Christ follower is what Paul is saying. It doesn't matter whether you believe there's a God or you don't believe there's a God. Whether you're in the house of God here at Potential Church or you're the gentleman who got in the vehicle and ran over 84 different people. He says basically all of us, whether we're insiders or outsiders, start out in identical conditions. We all start at the same place. 
Well, where is it that we start? Well, which is to say that we all start out as what? Sinners. Remember what the word sin means. It means to miss the mark, to miss the bullseye. What is the bullseye? It is perfection. In chapter 5 of the book of Romans, Paul says that sin entered the world through Adam. And therefore, we all start out in identical places. The evil that is in you and the evil that is in me and the evil is in those who do horrific things, we all started from the same place. We all started with the same uh, rebellious heart. He says, Scripture leaves no doubt about it. There's nobody living right. Not even one person. He said, there's nobody who knows the score. And this is important. Nobody alert for God. What does that mean? Well, you hear people sometimes and they'll say, you know, um, I found God. Or I found religion. And that's not what the Bible teaches. What the Bible teaches is that none of us are looking for God unless God is intervening or stepping into your life. None of us naturally are concerned about God. None of us are naturally alert to God or wondering what does God want us to do. None of that is on our own. That's what Paul is saying. He says we all start in the same place. We are focused on ourself, our wants, our desires, what we can do to get ahead. We all begin there. That, that's, that's where evil is birthed. There's no, go back, please. There's nobody living right, not even one. Nobody. Now that includes me, right? That includes you. And there's nobody alert for God. We've all, or they've all, Paul says, taken the wrong turn. We've all wandered down blind alleys. No one's living right. I can't find not even a single one. So then, who is evil? I am. And you are. And if we don't understand this point, you will never understand the depth of God's love and the hope that is available to you. Who was evil? Not him, not her, but me and you. We all begin there. And what does evil, um, what is the result of evil, or the question I put in your outline is what are the consequences then of my, of my evil heart? If, I'm, if the Bible teaches I'm evil, then what's going to be the outcome of that? What are the consequences for evil? And again, Paul explains this. Now, we're going to take a little bit of time to understand the consequences. So I want you to stay with me. Because I'm also going to answer for you in the next few moments why the people who killed those in Orlando, why Hitler, and why ISIS, why they do what they do. Okay, because Paul helps us with this and why you do what you do and why I do what I do. It's all explained in understanding the consequences. So what are the consequences? Let's look at what Paul says in Romans chapter one. It says, but God shows his anger. Now you need to circle because you got to understand what anger is. A lot of translations use the word wrath. God shows his wrath from heaven against all. What's this word? Sinful and wicked people. Who are the sinful and wicked people? Yeah, you and me, right? Because there are none righteous. There are none who have um, 
met God's standard. So God shows his anger from heaven to all those who are sinners, to all those who are wicked. This doesn't mean God throws a temper tantrum. Have you ever seen somebody just lose their temper? And You ever been at Walmart and see the five or eight-year-old not get the toy they wanted? You know, and they jump up and down and they scream and they just get all mad. Have you ever been to a ball game and seen parents lose their temper? Right? And you're just like, oh, have you ever seen one of those like news footage where you got parents from, you know, the five-year-olds playing t-ball and you got moms and dads out there and you're like, oh my gosh, that's not what this is. This doesn't mean that God loses his temper. What it means is that the wages of sin is death and that God is just. And as a just God, he cannot be apathetic about sin. He cannot be apathetic about the fact that you and I are not meeting the standard or the bullseye, which is perfection. So God then acts. It's kind of like this. Here in the United States, if someone commits murder, they are arrested and they go to court. And they are found guilty. And when they are found guilty, they're put in prison for life or in some states maybe even executed. Now, we do not put murderers in prison for life because we hate the murderer, okay? Justice is not carried out in the life of the murderer because we hate the murderer. The reason the murderer goes to prison for life is because we as a society have chosen to love life. See, the worst thing we could do as a society is to be apathetic, is to say, well, you know, Maybe they shouldn't have done it, but let bygones be bygones. What would, from the outside, what would you say? Well, that person doesn't love life because that's unjust. I mean, that, there's no justice in not acting upon the murderer, not because we don't, because we hate the murderer, but because we love life. Well, that's exactly what God is doing when it comes to sin. Is it, it's not God's mad and God's angry in a sense of being just upset and that you didn't do the right thing. This is not about what you do or what I do. It's about who we are when we are born with this evil heart. And so it's not that God hates us, but that he loves um, justice. It's about his justice. It would be in or unjust for God to be apathetic about sin to not do anything about sin. So, and who does he uh, bring judgment to? Those who suppress the truth by their wickedness. They know the truth about God. Now let's go back, because I want you to really see this. <clears throat> they suppress the truth. Now the word suppress means to, 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 to push down. It's in the aorist tense in the original Greek language. So that means that it's, it's continuous. It means that it's happening continually. It's kind of like, have you ever packed a suitcase too, with too much stuff? Right? And what do you have to do? You have to push it down. You have to set on it. You know, or, or you can't get it zipped. You can't get it closed. You have to, to give continuous pressure. You have to continually suppress the clothes to get it to zip. Have you ever put on pants that are too tight? Right? And what do you have to do? You have to suppress your belly. And you let your belly out, the pants aren't going to button. So you suppress the belly to get the pants buttoned. Well, this is what Paul says happens in our lives. Is that we, it's not that we don't know God. It's that we suppress 
what we know. That's why, have you ever noticed how difficult it is at times to get folks to even experience um, the, the house of God, to even experience for folks to come and, and hang out in his house, in the, in the church. You ever notice how sometimes, I mean, folks that will go with you to this and they'll be a part of that, but you ask them to church and they, they do what? They immediately, they keep it at arm's length. I mean, they're just put, oh, no, no. They suppress, they push away very aggressively at times. Sometimes they're very offended. And all you have done is ask them to something to have changed their life, to hang out maybe for a couple of hours. And yet their reaction is so over the top. Why is that? It's not because they don't know the truth. It's because they do know the truth, according to Paul in Romans chapter 1. And therefore, they want to keep it at an arm's length. They, they don't want to deal with what they know. And so they continuously, because if not continuously suppressing the truth, the truth would overcome them. Have you ever been amazed that atheists get so angry about something that they say they don't believe and doesn't matter? And yet they passionately and angrily rebel against it. Why is that? It's because if they do not, that truth will overtake them. That's what Paul says. He says that God's wrath is poured out not because they do not know, not because there is not enough evidence, but because what God has given is suppressed. Okay? <clears throat> Therefore, that, he, that we suppress the, the, our wick, the wickedness, they know the truth. Okay? We know the truth about God. Why? Because he's made it obvious to us. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and the sky and through everything God has made. They can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power, and his divine nature. So they have what? They have what? Yeah, they have no excuse for not knowing God. That's one of the things that's important for you to understand if you're sharing your faith with somebody that you love. Please understand, they may have intellectual um, challenges, intellectual thoughts that they have to work through and look at proofs and all those things. But please understand, according to the Scripture, that truth is in them. Okay? Ecclesiastes, the wisdom writer says in chapter 3, verse 11, God has put, the etern put eternity into the heart of man. All right, so you're with me. Now let me show you the consequences. We suppress the truth. <clears throat> we keep it at arm's length. We keep it out there. We don't want to let it in. Because in verse 28, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, so they kept God at arm's length. They kept God suppressed. If you read the whole chapter of Romans chapter 1, it says that they, um, although uh, presuming themselves to be wise, they become fools. They do crazy things. God then gave them over to a depraved mind. God said, you want to keep me at arm's length? Okay, do what you want. Live how you want. I am disengaging from your life. You will no longer sense a tap on the shoulder. You will no longer sense me working in your life. You will no longer have to suppress the truth that you know because I'm stepping back. I'm giving you over to the, what you want to do, what you think you desire. To do those things which are what? Not proper. And what does that mean? Not proper. Well, those are those things that you and I see people do and we're like, how could they do that? 
mean, how could Hitler take human people with hearts and families and destroy so many? How could a real person get into a vehicle and drive over 84 other folks, some of them children? How could a mother put her cars in a vehicle and drive into the lake, killing all of them? It doesn't make any sense. Paul says, this is how. Is that they suppress the, the truth of God. They keep it locked down to the point to where God says, that's what you want. Then he gives them over. And when he gives us over to what we desire, our mind then does what is not proper. Although in our mind, it seems proper. That's what Romans 1 is all about. It's this whole idea that sin affects our mind. Because God is at work in our lives. But the moment God is no longer work in our lives, then our minds are given over to do um, what, what, what they desire. There's a scripture in the Old Testament that uses the same language. Maybe it'll make it a little clearer. <clears throat> he says, he, God, handed them over. All right? So it's the same language. He handed them over. This is the people of God. He's talking about Israel. To pagan nations. And they were ruled by those who hated them. Go back for just a moment. Okay, so, so God does the same thing in our lives. He doesn't give us over to pagan nations, but he gives us over <clears throat> to our own inclinations. And when we are given over, now we are ruled by those who hate us. In other words, what happens is, is that we are now ruled by lust. Why did I commit adultery? Because I wanted that person. Why do I eat that fifth pizza pizza? Because I want it. Why did I take what is not my own? Because I wanted it. I mean, and all of a sudden, see, now we are given over to the desire that is within us. See, when God steps back, there, it, without God, there is no truth. There is no morality. There is no right and wrong. How can something that exists only for itself know what is right and know what is wrong? It's an impossibility. So now we are governed by our own desires. We are governed by what we want. And what he says is, is that when we are, it, we are given to those things that actually hate us. And by hating us, it destroys us. What I mean is, is that we, that lust seems so good, and we step into it, but the lust doesn't embrace us in love. It destroys our marriages. That pizza doesn't love us back. It gives us a heart attack. Right? When we take what is not ours, it doesn't, you know, embrace us. Instead, we end up, you know, in, in, in some kind of legal trouble. That, 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 that's what happened to them. And in using the same language, it's what happens in Romans 1. Now watch what happens. Their enemies crushed them and brought them under their cruel power. Do you ever feel like that? You ever feel like you're under the power of your lust? You just can't break free of it. It's always there in front of you. And it seems to always be pulling you back in. Or materialism, or greed, or thoughts, or anger, your temper. Just can't break free from it. Well, he says that's exactly what uh, was happening. It brought them out of power. And again and again, he, again, he rescued them. So what you gotta, this is the hope. What did God do? He didn't leave them under themselves. He rescued them, but they chose to rebel against him. And they finally were destroyed by what? Not by God, by their sin. 
Lust eventually destroyed them. Uh, anger eventually destroyed them. See, what are the consequences of an evil heart? Let's go back. Last verse I'm going to give you on this, Romans chapter 1. Paul kind of ends this chapter. He says, our lives become full. God steps back, and now we are embracing what we desire, and our life gets fuller as we pull into ourselves and into ourselves every kind of wickedness. Sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior, gossip. We're backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud, boastful. They invent ways of sinning and they disobey their parents. We refuse to understand. We break our promises. We're heartless and we have no mercy. Now, when you read that, you see that. I see that every day in our society. I, I see those things in the people around me. I see those things even within my own heart. So what happens is, is that God steps into our lives and he rescues us, and he convicts us, and he wants to set us free from those very things that will destroy us. But we suppress that truth. I don't know if I believe that. And so we do life our own way. We do sex our way. We do money our way. We get away with what we can. We do what we, what we want to do. And when we do, God eventually, and I don't know God's timetable, but Romans, Paul says, the Apostle Paul says that God then steps back and says, okay, and then that moment you will never again feel conviction in other words you are doomed to destruction salvation is not of your choosing you don't get set free from that which is uh, controlling you when you choose to it only comes when God is moving and working and so what is the judgment what are the consequences of an evil heart left in disobedient to God God's wrath. See, we see God's wrath being poured on, on, on those things that are happening around us. See, when we're God's kids, Hebrews chapter 11 says what? God disciplines his kids. But when you don't experience God's discipline, he says you're illegitimate. You're not one of his kids. So you see God's wrath being poured out on the destruction of that gentleman who, um, when you think about all these people who take the lives of others, they all lose their own life. And so you see God, not that God causes them to lose their life, God allows them to go in the direction in which they're heading. And them and those around them and the society in which we live experience the wrath or the judgment of God in the sense that we are left to our own destruction. Now, the Bible teaches that not only do we experience God's judgment on planet Earth for an evil heart, an unrepentant heart, but we do eternally as well. Jesus talked more about this than anyone else in the New Testament. Jesus used um, the word Gehenna, which is a valley. It's just outside the gates of Jerusalem. I've been there in uh, uh, times of old. Pagan societies would sacrifice their kids in that valley. The Jews would burn their trash <clears throat> in that valley. The word we translated in your English Bible, the word Gehenna is translated hell. And Jesus is the one who used that word more than anyone else because that is the eternal judgment. On earth, God's judgment is that he withdraws or he gives us over. 
The eternal judgment is the same, but that it's eternal. What is hell? It is separation eternally from God. Now, the Bible tries to describe what that separation for eternity looks like. And it talks about the torment, and it talks about the pain, and it talks about the agony. And we could look at all of those things, but you uh, can read those. You have probably heard other teachings about that. I just want to share a quote from a pastor uh, often referred to as the greatest American theologian who's ever lived. He um, was a Puritan, and he was a part of the Great Awakening, um, Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon called uh, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God in the sense in which we just talked about. And here's uh, what he said. I think I put it in your outline. He says, You hang by a slender thread with the flames of divine wrath flashing about it and ready every moment to, to singe it and to burn it asunder. And yet you have no interest in a mediator. And nothing to lay hold of to save yourself. Nothing to keep you off uh, from the flames of wrath. Nothing of your own. Nothing that you've ever done. Nothing that you can do to induce God to spare you for one moment. Yet it is nothing but God's hand that holds you from falling into the fire every moment. It It is to be ascribed to nothing else. Nothing that you did not, uh, nothing that you did not to go to hell last night that allowed, that you were allowed to awaken again in this world this morning after you closed your eyes to sleep. And there is no other reason to be given why you were not dropped into hell since you arose this morning, but that God's hand has held us up. There's no other reason to be given why you have not gone to hell since you've sat right here in the house of God. There's nothing else that is to be given as the reason why you do not at this very moment drop into hell other than, Jonathan Edwards said, the hand of God holding us up. And the only reason that the evil that resides in us hasn't destroyed the world as the scripture teaches is that God holds back that evil. And in the same way, he is holding us up in order to give us opportunity to do what? What do we do about this heart that the scripture teaches we all have? Not just those who do the horrific, but that we all have. The heart that I'm born with and the heart that the young man who walked into that nightclub was born with are the same heart in the same condition. So if the consequences of my evil are God's wrath, how can I overcome evil? What do I do about it? Am I destined to experience God's wrath on planet Earth and the hopes that my will in some way will keep me from doing the horrific, only to find myself eternally separated from God? I mean, what, what, what can I do to overcome evil? And I, I, I gave you a little blank at the end of each one of these, but I want to give you the the, the fill-in, and then we'll look at the Scripture. Because the question is, what can I do? And the answer is, you can't do anything. That's important to understand. Sir, you can't do anything about it. Ma'am, you can't do anything about it. You and I were born with an evil heart, and there's nothing you can do. You can't go to church enough to change your heart. 
You can't give enough to change your heart. You can't get baptized when you're young to change your heart. You can't take communion to change your heart. You can't pray to change your heart. You can't worship to change your heart. There is nothing you can do. Nothing. And until you and I understand that, because that's the very thing that we rebel against, we tend to believe that in the end we will be okay. And the reason we will be okay is because, well, we're better than them. We've done at least enough. God understands my heart. And because he understands my heart, I'm going to be okay. And I want you to know you are dead wrong. There's nothing you can do. Yet, Jesus has already done it. And therein lies the hope that while you and I can do nothing to salvage our evil heart, God, the all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere at one time God, has already done something to overcome the evil that is in me. Now this is amazing to me. And I think that it's often taken for granted by even those of us who declare Jesus is our Lord. It's amazing to me that God could easily look at you and say, hey, you could have got to heaven. All you had to do is keep the Ten Commandments. I mean, God provided a way in the Old Testament. It was the law. And if you would really wanted to go, you could have kept the law. But you didn't. You didn't. None of us have. We saw that a few moments ago. And so God could have justly sent all of us to eternal separation from him under his wrath. That is what we deserve. No matter how much better you are than somebody who has done something much worse. It's what we all deserve. And yet God didn't. He didn't. He didn't just turn his back on humanity. He didn't just decide that we weren't worth the effort. In Romans chapter 5, Paul says in verse number 8, but God showed this great love for us. How? By sending Christ to die. Now that's a pretty big deal. I mean, the fact that God would put on skin and die, but he not only did that, he died for us while we're still sinners. He died for us while we were still in rebellion. He died for us while we wagged our finger at him and told him we would do what we wanted to do, when we wanted to do it, how we wanted to do it, and that we were not going to trust him, and that we would walk out of this building in great confidence of doing life our way. And yet, in the midst and in the presence of that attitude, God put on skin, and he came to planet Earth, and he humbled himself upon the cross, and he defeated death because of his love for humanity, his love for you. He did what you and I could not do. Now, why is it important that he died? Well, Paul tells us when he's writing to the church at Corinth, for God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. Now, if you don't understand this, you'll, you, you'll, you, you, it won't make sense to you. See, God is a just God. Romans tells us the wages of sin is death. There has to be a penalty. There has to be a price. And it is death for sin. And so the only way, you say, well, couldn't God just do whatever he wanted to do, not and still be God? And so God, rather than turn his back on humanity, John 1, chapter 1 says that God pitched his tent. In other words, he put on a skin. 
And he lived a perfect life on planet Earth. You and I have not lived a perfect life. He went to the cross as a substitute, an offering, a sacrifice. And why did Jesus die? What does it say? He put on my sin. He put on my evil heart. He took the thoughts that you have had. That if the person beside you knew you had, you'd be embarrassed. The things that you have done that you hope nobody ever finds out that you did. The things that we do even now. He took them all on. He became our sin. And therefore, he received the penalty of that sin. God did not hold back at all when you read Isaiah chapter 53. But it also says, go back. It says, so that we could be made right in, uh, through Christ. In other words, so we get what? We get his perfection. When God looks at me, he doesn't see my screw-ups. He doesn't see my evil heart. He sees the perfection of Christ. That's why the Old Testament uh, prophet Isaiah did say this, but it was the Lord's good plan to crush who? Christ. And to cause Christ's grief. His life is made an offering <clears throat> for me. And for you. Let me show you this last verse. Maybe it'll help us. Galatians chapter 3. But Christ has rescued. I love this word. When something is rescued, it means that it can't save itself. He jumped in. Just like someone jumped into the water with a life preserver, God jumped into the world. He rescued us from what? The curse. What was the curse? It was pronounced by the law. What's the law? It's the Old Testament uh, Torah. It's, it's the Ten Commandments. In other words, you didn't keep it. I didn't keep it. And because we didn't keep it, we are cursed. We must pay that penalty. And the scripture says, when he was hung on the cross, he took upon himself that curse. He took upon himself that penalty. And in doing so, Ezekiel tells us that this is what's available to us. And I will give you a new heart. That's the hope. The new heart. The hope is in the fact that you and I do not have to suffer the penalty that we deserve. We do not have to experience God separated us from planet earth. God is not pulled back upon those of us who trust him. He is at work in your life so that you can become everything that God has created you to be. So that you can have the kind of marriage. So that you can have the kind of finances. So that you can have the kind of relationships. That's why God's actively involved in your life. That's why you feel his tap on the shoulder when you step out to do it your way as opposed to the way of scripture. That is that hope. Is that the all-powerful, all-knowing God is at work in my life life so that I might become that for which he created me. That is our great, our great hope. It's a new heart. And as a result of this new heart, we get God's uh, spirit in us. God lives in us to lead us to that for which we were created. So how do you get it? How do you get the new heart? Does everybody get one? He, he died on the cross for the world. What must I do? Well, the Bible says, Paul, again, the apostle in chapter 10, here's what he says. He says, if you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and, what's this word? Believe, have faith in. It's a Greek word that means to put your weight in on, uh, to, to sit upon, to, to, to completely trust, to put your hope in. 
uh, believe in your heart that God had raised him from the dead, you will be saved or you will be salvaged. <clears throat> For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God, and it is by openly declaring your faith that you are salvaged. Openly declaring your faith. What, what, what does that mean? Well, it's not that what we do brings about salvation, but that what we do is a revelation of what we believe. That, that, that's what all the writers of the New Testament say over and over again. James said it like this. He said, faith without works is dead. What's James saying? That I have to work my way to heaven? I have to be good? And if I'm good enough, then I will get eternity? No, no. What James is saying is that when you have a new heart, it reveals itself. It's kind of like if you go out and you got an old yucky car and you get a brand new engine in it, if it still runs like it did before you got the new engine, then you think that the mechanic took advantage of you, promised something he didn't deliver. Because a new engine ought to be able to be felt when you hit the accelerator, when you turn on the ignition. Well, the same thing is true with salvation. Some of us declare to have something and yet nothing has changed in our lives. And James says that then that, that's not belief. Belief uh, proudly declares, openly declares. Belief then impacts all that we are because it gives us a new heart. Belief impacts the way you do marriage. Impacts the way you do your job. It impacts the way you look at the world. It impacts the, the way that you forgive. It impacts every aspect of our lives. And when our life is not impacted, here's my challenge to you. Because this is my fear. My fear that while many of us might believe that there is a God, and that in some way and in somehow, because we have declared that there is a God, that we will not spend eternity separated from Him. But when you look into your life, there's been no change. Your hope is in you. Because you do what you think is best. See, the writer in Ephesians says it like this. He says, God saved you by what? His grace. Got nothing to do with you, sir. He didn't save you because you're better. He doesn't like one country better than another. No, it's just all, it's all him. Don't ever, please, do not ever take that for granted. Do not ever begin to think that God owes you something because of something you've done. Some doubt how God hasn't, kept his word or done what you thought that he would. No, no, it's by his grace when you do what? When you believe. He says it's, it, it, you can't take credit for it. It's a gift from him. If you could do it, then you would boast about it. I'd boast about it. And so I was thinking about this. I'm in a moment going to give you an opportunity to do what that scripture says, to believe, to put your hope in him, to sit down, to trust him. And then I thought, well, how do we declare that? You know, I mean, do I, do I just, do we just pray? Do someone raise their hand? Do they stand? How do we do that? And as, as I thought about it, I thought, well, I'm going to give you the opportunity to, to, to come to the front. And we're going to pray together here at the front. Because I want to give you that opportunity to publicly declare. It says openly declare. Now, that takes courage. It's a courage that is <clears throat> the result of, of a heart that desires to believe or desires to trust. 
And so I, I want to I give you that opportunity if you're here. And as we've walked through this word, God has tapped you on the shoulder. And he said, you know, that's really why I wanted you here today. Is I want you to know how dangerous it is for you to continue to say no. For you to continue to say later. For you to continue to come up with some kind of reason of why you're better than this person and you know more than this person. You were baptized when you were this age and you were a member of this church and you took communion here. And, and remember, you went on this mission and you got all these other reasons. And I think that God wanted you to know, to continue to say no to what you know you need to say yes to. Not anything I want to talk you into. It's what you sense on God's heart. I want to give you an opportunity to say yes. To say, I'm going to stop keeping God at arm's length. I'm going to stop trying to keep what I know in my heart is real tucked away in that suitcase. And I'm just going to make him my hope. And so I'm going to pray for us. And then we're going to stand and we're going to sing. And I'm going to invite you to just join me here at the front. We're going to pray. <clears throat> do what God tells us to do. And then... Um, We'll go back to our seats. It, 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 it's not anything crazy. And we're, we're not going to sing for a long time. Listen, the, God's either nudging your heart and you know, or he's not. This is on you, not me. When God nudges my heart, it's on me. It's on you as an individual. And so I, I just encourage you, just be obedient to his love in your life. Would you bow your head? As soon as I say amen and we worship, just join me here at the front and at the end of our worship, we'll pray together. If you're in the balcony, you might go ahead and start coming. All right? Because I don't think we should, ought to have to, to beg and to plead. Father, I thank you for your love. I thank you that you have given me, I, I, me, Troy, what I do not deserve. And I ask for forgiveness for the number of times in my own life that I've taken for granted or overestimated my goodness as if you owe me something. I pray that the enemy would be defeated. I pray that we would trust in you. In Jesus' name, let's stand, let's worship, and would you respond?